Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Teko. Today, I am talking to Ali Diab, co-founder and CEO of Collective Health, someone I go way back with as we backed Collective Health when I was at Rock Health. Ali, it is so great to have you here today. Thank you, Hallie. It's great to be here. Nice to see a familiar face. Yeah. So I find that most digital health founders who previously worked in tech, were drawn to the sector from one of their own experiences, usually a not-so-great experience, and you are no exception to this. Why don't we start by you telling listeners what brought you to start Collective Health and how you're helping solve the problem that you faced many years ago? Yeah, it's such an original founding story, isn't it? But but you're right. Um, I'm not a healthcare person by background other than being the son and sibling of doctors. So I got my fair share of healthcare exposure growing up, but you're right, not a healthcare person. Uh, my background is as a consumer internet product person, as I know you know. I spent many years at places like Yahoo and Microsoft and AdBob Google building products that make us um, find our way around things like Yahoo Maps at the time, or find things on the internet like Google search or Yahoo search, and then also click on ads inside of apps like we did at AdMob. So you can blame us for all that stuff. But you're right, in uh, March 2013, out, totally out of the blue, I was hospitalized with a pretty serious illness. It was life-threatening life at the time. I had a small intestinal obstruction that sort of came out of the blue, um, resulted in me being in the hospital for about a month, having most of my small intestine removed surgically through a series of very painful surgeries. Um, and then you know, pretty arduous recovery after I was discharged from the hospital. I guess I would say I was very fortunate, feel very fortunate that I was in the U.S., close to a place like Stanford, where I was treated when that happened. Um, I probably, you know, I may not have made it had that not been the case. Um, but to your point and your question, um, I was very shocked, given that I was on a very rich employer-sponsored, technology employer-sponsored, specifically healthcare plan, a couple of months later to have most of my billed yeah. hospital charges denied. And so that's really what precipitated my and my co-founder. Mm. Um, starting Collective Health. And we just had a very naive proposition initially, which was, can we just make this a much less brain-damaging customer experience? Mm. Yeah. I, you mean, you often hear that navigating the paperwork and the finances of healthcare treatment is often as complex and painful as the treatment, the surgery itself. Yeah, for sure. And my, you know, my co-founder, Dr. Batniji, who I know you know, and who's the, currently the CEO of Waymark, 
I used to say things like, you know, I spend probably twice as much time dealing with billing and coverage issues as I actually do treating patients. And that was shocking to me to hear it at the time. Um, But I can see why. I mean, whether it's getting prior authorizations approved and dealing with all the paperwork that's associated with that, or even just helping patients understand what their financial responsibilities are, um, it's a lot of time. And, and, you know, the incumbents don't make it intentionally, I would say, easy for people. So one of my favorite quotes of yours is, you don't need to know bond math to understand your mortgage. So why do I need to understand every acronym and every medical term to understand my health benefit plan? And that is so true. Even working in healthcare for as long as I have and as long as you have, I'm sure there's still bills that you get that are mind boggling, um, you know, interactions where you're just like, what is happening? I, I, I. I know a lot about healthcare and I still can't navigate this. How have you really dedicated the last decade of your career to helping people understand healthcare? Frankly, by doing just that. I mean, yeah. to your to your point, think about a lot of the things that we use every day, whether it's the cars that we drive or the vehicles that we're in, or the, whether it's the devices or even the software and services that we use, you know, if you use things like Google or Amazon, they're actually incredibly technically complex systems, you know, having worked on and designed some very popular ones myself. But there was a real onus, and I'd say probably spearheaded by the likes of Apple and Microsoft in the 80s, among the technology sector to simplify it so that it could be something that had broad consumer appeal. And so when I looked at health insurance, I, I, the same kind of thinking, which was, okay, this is not any more complicated than an iPhone or what, you know, what sort of powers something like Amazon.com, but it feels like it's almost intentionally designed to make you feel that complexity every time that you interact with it. And I used to joke that sort of customer experience or customer service and health insurance in particular, health benefits, felt like attrition, like they were just trying to get you to go away. And we took the absolute opposite approach, which was, no, let's make this like really convenient and accessible and easy to understand. And hopefully in doing that, help people avoid making some very costly mistakes. And the last point I would say on that is I remember when we started, people looked at us cross-eyed, like you guys are insane. You know what you guys (laughs) are going to do? You're going to make people want to use more healthcare because Americans just love using healthcare. And that just never sounded logical to me. And it also was not supported by the data. You know, we use healthcare in the U.S. about equivalently the same level as our counterparts in Western Europe or, or Asia and developed nations. But the only difference is that stuff in the U.S. costs two and a half to three times more. So that to me doesn't indicate that there's a understanding problem as much as it indicates that there is a frankly, market power or supply choking power problem. Yeah. So my, my husband was a customer at Cloudera and he, he says that collective health was the best HR software that he had ever used and anything related to, you know, enterprise software. He was such a fan. Can you tell us a little bit about like examples of things that you simplify for employees? Yeah, well, first, thank you, Jeff. That's high praise coming coming from a, a co-founder of Cloudera and somebody who has the kind of experience he does. So we do a couple of things. So first and foremost, we just try to be intentional in how we design stuff. So think about, for example, when you go to see a therapist. Most of them are out of network still. And you have 
basically a pile of paper that you take with you when you're, when you're discharged, when you leave the therapist's office that you then need to submit or find a way to submit to your health insurance company for reimbursement. Because most, at least employer plans now, cover behavioral health up to a certain level, and they're getting more generous, thankfully, now that it's becoming destigmatized. But the primary way that the vast majority, if not to say all of the incumbent health insurance companies out there accept that paperwork is via some obscure form on their website that you need to download, print, fill out manually, and then fax. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that the state <laughs> of user experience in the biggest industry sector in the country in 2024? Yeah. So just like taking a very basic kind of step back and thinking, well, these bills are not more complicated than your typical traveler expense receipt. So why can't you just expensify this? Why can't you just take a photo, use some very basic, basic optical character recognition you know, techniques and you know, strip out all the structured data and then just submit it as an electronically submitted claim that a normal doctor's office would submit for a lot of their stuff. And yeah. I mean, people were like, what? And I was like, that doesn't seem that hard and it's not. So it's a pretty low bar. So that's, that's yeah. how we approach everything. It's like, can we make this simpler? If so, how? And if it's not like impossible or there's not some regulatory hurdle and there nine times out of 10, there aren't just to go do it. Yeah. I mean, the bar is so low for yes, what we expect out of, still, out of healthcare. Yeah. Still so low. I mean, most Americans access health insurance through their employers. However, people really only stay in jobs three to four years. And I hear that that's even getting shorter and shorter. And I think that's something that frustrates a lot of us in healthcare is when we switch jobs, we switch employers, we have to figure out how to get health insurance again. But you think employers, you say this all the time, that employers are actually part of the solution and always will be. Can you say more about that? Well, I mean, our country is unique, you know, given what happened um, in World War II and in the post-war period with wage inflation, our federal government decided that allowing employers under a federal rubric to provide benefits, not just health benefits, but benefits in general, in a tax-favorable way, was a good way of enriching the American workforce without introducing greater wage inflation. So there was some yep. very sensible microeconomic logic <laughs> to all of this stuff. So a quirk in history. A quirk <laughs> in history is why we have the system that we do in the U.S. Why we have point, COBRA. Yeah. <laughs> right. And one out of two Americans is covered under an employer plan versus under a federal plan like a national health plan in other countries, which Medicare and Medicaid are. Right. Those are federal yeah. plans. But employers, are right, cover more than those two Those two federal plans combined. And, you know, I think in a system like the U.S. where we don't love taxes and we would do anything to avoid taxes, and I say we kind of, you know, liberally here, that does make sense because the federal government is already under a tremendous amount of pressure with deficits and debt to underwrite the obligations they already have. So why not Mm. have the private sector, which is flush with cash, um, help? And so that's, you know, the logic behind the system that we have. So yeah. when we looked at trying to, if you will, revolutionize things, we're like, well, this is, looks like something that we're not going to be able to change anytime soon. So why don't we try to work within this economic rubric? And why don't we try to make these employers who effectively are running many health insurance companies just really intelligent, capable buyers of healthcare, and treat it kind of like flip it on its head, treat it like an enterprise software problem, kind of like Workday has done with you know, HR software and talent management 
or you know, Microsoft is enabled or Amazon is enabled with cloud software and stuff like that. So that was kind of the initial thought. And then in doing that over time, could we create a continuum where, because collective health is so widely distributed, just like right now, you know, you can get your iPhone to run on basically any of the large networks. You know, if you switch from employer to employer, collective health would still be there and follow you along the way. And there was mm -hmm. even very early on some intentional user experience design that we brought to even designing our data models and databases so that that continuity could exist. So that if you were at an employer that had collective health, yeah. you went to one that didn't, and then you went and rejoined another one that did, that wasn't the same as the first, that third employer would actually have knowledge or you would have yeah. access because of that unique user identifier to all of that data historically. So you're solving, so you're actually solving for that gap, that problem that a lot of employees face. Yeah. yeah, and of course, it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time. But yes, we are solving for that gap. Yeah. And you intentionally, you are are not the insurance company. You are not the benefits provider. You are working with all of the existing players in the space, being that enablement layer underneath. You And you've been very intentional about that. Tell me more about how you've approached this business as a partnership business, really. Yeah, so maybe it might be helpful for listeners just to understand a little bit about what the difference between self-insuring and fully insuring your health insurance is or your health benefits is. So in the U.S., as we said, one out of two Americans roughly is covered under an employer plan versus a federal plan. And then within that 50% of Americans, about two out of three are covered under what's known as a self-insured arrangement, where the employer actually underwrites all of the risk of the health benefit plan for its employees and for, for all of the dependents who are on that plan. And what's beneficial about doing that as an employer are, are two things. Number one, you avoid a bunch of fees that are associated with fully insured plans where you basically give all of the financial risk to a third-party insurance company to underwrite that risk. But you And you also get a lot more control and transparency into how you design the plan, what goes into the plan, what facets with plan design, what you decide to cover, what you don't decide to cover. Think things like behavioral benefits, fertility, you know, family you know, building benefits, et cetera. And then because you're the one effectively using that health insurance company now as a payment processor and customer service entity, I'll say that within quotes, you have a right in many ways to access the data on a much more granular and transparent level to understand you know, what kind of disease categories are prevalent in my population, what interventions are working, what systems and hospitals seem to be performing the best at, you know, delivering high quality care at an affordable price, etc. Now, I say that because I say that that's kind of theoretically true because the health insurance industry does not like self-insurance. You know, from their perspective, you're basically peering into how they mm. do stuff. It would be sort of like if you had the ability to like look into your Geico policy and then look into Geico's entire insurance pool and understand whether or not they're gouging you, you know, yeah. on your premium. Not something insurance companies love. They love information asymmetry. Mm. The health insurance industry is no different. And yeah. so from my vantage point, it was true to the origin story because I was on a self-insured employer plan when I got sick. And I was like, well, why does the carrier, the insurance company, have all of this say in denying my health care? Like my employer should be able to get involved. I was like, why don't we start there? And at the same time, remove that, what I think is awful, moral hazard problem between the person underwriting your health care risk 
and the natural desire to not want to pay for things that might be expensive or not share information with you and just be totally beholden to the companies that are using us or procuring collective health to run their health benefit plans because we only get paid by them. We don't get paid mm. by marking up drugs. We don't get paid by you know, renegotiating hospital claims in some very hidden manner that makes us money totally hidden from view from the company that's using us to administer the health, their health benefit plan. So that was a very intentional choice. And last point, we have stuck with that focus on self-insured employers because we think that that's actually the battering ram that you use to break down all the barriers in this industry because everyone you know, talks about value-based care and the need for people to assume more and more risk. And my response to that is, yeah, I think it's important that providers warrant their services, just like anybody who sells you something warrants the service. But as an insurance plan, no, I actually want to know why things cost what they do. I want to be able to look into that black box hmm. and understand that cesarean sections at hospital A are much lower risk, much higher quality, and half the cost than cesarean sections at hospital B, even though hospital B has a filet steak you know, and mashed potato entree that you know, every pregnant woman in my city wants as part of their hospital stay. Because hmm. I think that's how you make the American employer, and I'd say ultimately also the American individual, a better, more educated buyer of healthcare. And that's what's yeah. lacking. Well, what's what employers also have, their incentives are also aligned with your short-term health and wellness. They want you to get vaccinated. They don't want you to get the flu and be out for a week. So there's certainly an alignment there from they they have hopefully care about you as a, as a human, but they also care about your levels of productivity and you being healthy so that you can do your job. Yeah, I think there is, I mean, like with everything, there's an imperfect and incomplete alignment of incentives. But I will say, having done this now for a decade, that the fear that employers are short-termist and would shortchange their employees when it comes to healthcare is simply not true. Like I've not seen that once and including among yeah. employers that have very high levels of attrition. I think the American employer mm. for the most part is trying to do the right thing. I think the American employer for the most part also to your point is trying to maximize the productivity mm -hmm. of their workforce and retention of that workforce. And the employment of health benefits is actually a very effective way of doing that because if people are getting their screenings and getting their preventative care, they are going to catch things earlier, and they're also going to be out of work less because of that. Yeah. If they wait and they kick the can, they're going to have something terrible emerge, and then they're going to be completely out of pocket for a long time. And all of that time and money and effort that you spent training that worker kind of goes out the window at that point. We'll be right back after the break. Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. 
Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. And how do you tie in all these benefits that we're now seeing at employers, some of them being clawed back perhaps, but fertility benefits and gym memberships and all of that? Yeah, I mean, so you you start by building an open platform, not unlike iOS, where you can, you know, as an app developer, just plug your app into the operating system. In addition to all the traditional stuff, the you know, traditional, you know, medical PPO style networks, dental networks, vision networks, etc. And then you make them interoperate. And that sounds really easy in theory. Practice, it's very, very difficult because everyone codes their data differently in this industry, even the different insurance companies do for the same, you know, quote unquote type of form, like, you know, a hospital admission or whatever. And so we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and have and money um, building a very sophisticated data ingestion and data normalization system to make sure that that form that came from network A has all the same parameters as the same kind of form that would come from network B or or healthcare program C. And that way we can actually run analysis across all of those different things. To, To tell you, for example, which is analysis actually we did quite a long time ago with our partners at One Medical, whether paying for a One Medical primary care membership makes sense for your population, both financially and clinically from a population health standpoint. But I have to understand that a primary care visit at One Medical in the actual data structures themselves actually is interpreted the same way by our systems and by our machines, if you will, as a regular primary care visit or other kind of visit that you might get at a traditional hospital or outpatient clinic. Yeah. So are you selling to HR, to the CFO? Like who is that internal person that has to be your champion to get the company to move over to collective health? It's all of the above, quite frankly, and sometimes the CEO, sometimes even the board, Mm. because, you know, no one replaces a health benefit plan. Health care in general is the second largest employer expense after wages. So it's a very, very significant chunk of change. And it's a very high consequence decision. Like if I change from A to B and all of a sudden a bunch of physicians that were contracted with health insurance company A are no longer contract with health insurance company B and my people go to the doctor or they go to the hospital for treatment and they're told that actually that's not covered under your plan, that's incredibly disruptive. So it's a very, very considered decision and it involves everybody usually starting or principally starting with the benefit leader. And if they have a consultant, the consultant that kind of helps them make sense of the industry options that are out there. But finance absolutely gets involved. And then very, very often the CEO even gets involved. And what's that sales cycle look like? It depends, obviously, on the size of the employer and their, I should say, the the complexity or the sophistication of their health benefit plan. But it typically averages about a year and a half, at least in the market segment that we focus on, because you do have to have a certain amount of critical mass to be self-insured, you know, several hundred employees, ideally over a thousand employees. That limits the universe. And there, those are large companies. They typically have annual procurement cycles for everything that they do, not just healthcare. And so you kind of have to slot yourself into that procurement cycle. Yeah. 
I heard you in an interview once a few years ago describe the stage of collective health. This cracked me up as out of the homicide phase and into oh the suicidal phase where oh you become the only one who can mess things up. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. It's amazing how the things Are you say publicly always come back to haunt you. <laughs> Um, but it's an interesting say, way to, yeah. I mean, so for, for any of the founders listening, let's talk about that and how you're moving from a place of the competitors that can just turn on a feature and, and make you irrelevant to a place where you're literally, you know, the success is in your hands. Yeah. And that's, thank you. That's probably a much more elegant way. Um, and less sort of gruesome way of describing what I was, but it was out. memorable. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're first kind of bootstrapping and, and trying to get your first customers and product built, like, you know, you're, you're iterating so fast and you're vulnerable. I mean, you know, you don't have a deployed customer base or installed customer base, you know, your reputation, particularly in an industry like healthcare that values just staying power or being there, if you will, for a long time you know, is always under question. So yeah, I mean, the first I'd say, I mean, sometimes I even feel it today, but first five years for sure, it definitely felt like we could get crushed, like in a moment's notice, like yeah. United Healthcare could build something or I don't know, somebody could build something and we would just be toast. Yeah. And then what you realize, not unlike the other industries that I had worked in and helped to disrupt prior, is that incumbents are busy with the existing business that they have. And it's really hard, to your point and to the comment you made, for them to actually turn on a dime in the way that you might fear mm. they can. So I guess the message to especially early founders is if you have an opening or if you have a wedge in the market, don't worry too much about what the incumbents will do to you. They'll throw shade on you. They'll, <laughs> you know, they'll trash talk you in the market. They'll create FUD. But if you really do feel like there's a wedge and you've got to do your homework to understand if there truly is one, then just keep your head down and keep cranking and yeah. good stuff happens. And I see it even now, like now that in some yeah. ways, perversely, I would say, we're a bit of an incumbent in this sector and there are all these, mm. you know, constraints that come with that. I'm like, gosh, like a little company could emerge and like totally disrupt us in this yeah, area. Yeah. <laughs> Or that area, you know, so it's like, oh my back. God, now, yeah, right, now I'm like the thing they're going to start fighting. You know? <laughs> back and it's, to the and homicide phase. We're like, it's the, it's the startups circle. on the street that are, yeah. Full circle, that totally. Are and it's David versus Goliath, right? Yeah. Totally. Well, the way as a startup, you can, you can iterate, you're small, you can customize something for your first customer. And then, you know, as you scale, as you said, it takes a lot longer. You have to kind of make institutional change across, you know, perhaps a, larger group of customers and larger group of employees. Um, yeah. So that, that makes sense. But certainly the thing that stands out about your business and how you were able to move from being a startup to now really being an incumbent in this, in this sector is having that moat that you've created by having a better product, by having something that has very high switching costs. Um, so you made a lot of decisions and maybe you just got lucky with some of these, but let's pretend like they were all very intentional because now you've kind of set collective health up for long-term success. Well, I appreciate your saying that. I mean, I wish I could take credit, take credit for all the decisions. A lot of it is luck and circumstance and being in the right place at the right time. But as you know, somebody much wiser than me once said, you know, you have to be prepared to be lucky. And I think if you are 
brutally honest with what you do and what you think your differentiators are and also what you desire to do. I think that's also important. Like it was very authentic for us at Collective Health, given the origin story, to want to disrupt the self-insured employer health benefit market because that was my origin story. That's what Mm. I was suffering from. But everyone else or other people are going to have their own unique contexts and stories which will inform that. But another point that I would make related to sort of being brutally honest with yourself is that when you're when you're also a startup, you have less to lose. Mm. Like you don't have all the reputational damage. You're not a publicly traded company that comes under all the scrutiny of you know being publicly traded, which we know is immense. And so you know, I, I kind of even like liken it. You know, obviously there's a lot of not to turn this in a different direction. A lot of political turmoil in the world. But I tell people like, as the United States, we have to be very deliberate in our actions because we are the ultimate incumbent. Right. Mm. And, and the smallest yeah. misstep has massive reverberations, reputational and otherwise, whereas a kind of more agile, more innovative, younger country, if you will, or economy can be more risk taking because they're not sort of encumbered by all of the things that are more mature, developed, established one is. And you know, the enterprise space is really no different. Yeah. Okay, so since you got political, let's talk Uh-oh. about the let's Uh-oh. talk about the free market. No, I'm not, not going to go that direction. We're going to talk about. Um, so I had Ann Wahicki from Twenty Three and Me on the show, and she said our yeah. healthcare system is a communist system. You say it's an oligarchical system, regardless of what it is today. How do you think we can actually get to a free market, and should that even be the goal? Oh man. Um... I would, I mean, I respect Anne a lot. I would have a hard time characterizing the U.S. healthcare market as communist, especially given how much profiteering takes place. But I guess, mm. you know, corrupt communists are profiteering too. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I do think if you look at the U.S. healthcare system, there is a lot of market concentration and power, both on the provider side of things and on the insurer, you know, distributor, purchaser side of things. And again, just for listeners, like healthcare is no different than any other market. There are people that make stuff or deliver stuff, whether it's, you know, dog food or whether it's a hotel room experience, like whatever it is. And there are people who buy it, whether it's an enterprise or whether it's an individual consumer. And so hospitals and physicians provide services and there are drug companies and device manufacturers that help sort of enable those physicians and hospitals. But that's the supply side of the market. And then insurance companies and also the federal government through programs like Medicare and Medicaid consolidate the purchasing of all that stuff. So you can get, in theory, economies of scale and you know purchasing power. The problem is that the federal government has so much power in dictating price that oftentimes they dictate price at a level that actually isn't supported by the supply side. Sort of like you get on an airplane and there are 100 economy seats and they're all 200 bucks. And then there's 10 business class seats on the plane and those seats are $5,000. And people are like, is that seat really worth 20 times the price of the economy seat? The thing that you don't consider when you kind of look at it that way is this company that runs this plane is trying to make sure that it can continue to survive and be solvent. And so they may be giving away all of those economy seats well below cost. And they have to recoup that profit through the business class or first class passenger. That's what's happening in the U.S. healthcare system today. Medicare sets rates oftentimes at levels that are actually below cost 
for big hospitals. And we can get into whether or not that's witting or unwitting, but it doesn't matter. The truth is that that's what happens. And then those hospitals through private health insurance plans, the ones that you buy like on Covered California as an individual, and then for the vast majority, the ones that like your employer buys on your behalf, are contracted at rates far higher than what the federal government contracts. So you, as a private purchaser of healthcare, as an enterprise, like let's say your Apple or your Google, you're already at a disadvantage because for every hospital visit that one of your people has, it already costs three or four times what it would cost their mom or dad on Medicare or you know a friend of theirs on Medicaid. So you're at a structural cost disadvantage from the supply side standpoint. And so what we are trying to enable at Collective Health is more of an understanding around those dynamics mm. and more of a conversation that I do think ultimately will involve the federal government and state governments that procure healthcare and have the power to set price so that there can be a much more rational discussion around what that price level should be and hopefully a more sort of market-driven mechanism for how that price is set. And I think we have actually a really, really good rubric in utilities in this country that went through very a very similar transformation. And I think we need to look at things like that as a framework for how healthcare contracts should be priced. The last thing I'll say on this is that even within the private health insurance space, it just boggles my mind how little transparency and knowledge and understanding there is around what the underlying actual cost is and also the variation in that cost. Like, I don't know about you, but like a carton of milk should not cost three times as much depending on whether or not I paid with a Visa card or an American Express card at the local grocery store. That is very much the state of what a knee replacement costs, depending on whether or not you have a Blue Shield card or a United Healthcare card or a Cigna card in certain geographies. And it's, again, because there's a lot of market power on the supply side at a very microscopic microgeography level. Just think of the Bay Area or Manhattan where you live. There's a few very powerful large systems that kind of dominate the market. I hate to use that word, but they do. And so they have a lot of pricing ability to dictate price, especially in that private sector yeah. where the, gov- the government's not too much, being like too much backroom dealing, a lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot of backroom dealing and a lot of just market power to be able to say, yeah. no, nope, the price is going to be this and tough cookies if you don't like it. Yeah. Well, for anyone listening and wants to dive into that topic more, Elizabeth Rosenthal has a fantastic book, yes. American Sickness. I had Good her on best. this show early, maybe two years ago and kind of an early guest and just really fascinating uh, deep dive into it. And she's been a huge advocate for patients that get surprising medical bills and does a ton of work around that. Yeah, she's a brilliant, brilliant yeah. study of this industry for sure and a great writer. Yeah. So Ali, I have one final question for you. If you could wave a wand and change anything about our healthcare system to make it better, what would it be? I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm truly negotiating against myself, but I'd probably- <laughs> Putting yourself re- out of business. <laughs> I'd probably rewind the tape back to the 1950s um, and put myself in the White House as a policymaker or the HHS as a policymaker. And you know, really establish a nationalized health system rubric. Yeah. I mean, that's really what we need. That yeah. doesn't mean that private healthcare goes away, but it becomes more of a supplement rather than a replacement. And then yeah. you effectively, you create a truly liquid market where everybody, people working and people not working, people who have the means and people who don't have the means are all kind of tapping into the same economic framework. 
you know, and as an economist, as a macroeconomist, really by background, like that, that simplicity sure. and elegance really appeals to me. And, you know, I'm not the first to say it, nor will I be the last. People like Zeke Emanuel and a whole bunch of other people much smarter than me about this. I've been talking about this stuff for a while, but that's what I would do. Amazing. Oh, Ali, thank you so much for being here and sharing all your wisdom. Thank you for having me, Holly. It was great to hear your voice and to talk more. Thanks for listening to The Heart of Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe. The Heart of Healthcare is produced by Hallie Tecco. The show is engineered, edited, and mixed by Kyle Moore. Visit our website, heartofhealthcarepodcast.com, for show notes and episode details. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.